Okay, here goes. Hello and welcome to Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with disappointed Duke basketball fan Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos. I'm, I mean, the real disappointed person is Mike Shea because the basketball minute comes to an end. Yep. Uh, I'm not even going to talk about the game. It was, it was sad, but it was a good game. It was great. It was a classic. If you like basketball, check it out. And I'm sorry for St. Bonaventure, mm-hmm. the uh, yep. eventual NIT champion, bested yep. them in the final four. Yeah, that happens. But uh, in honor of Mike Shea, we will cut the basketball minute short of a minute and get into into some uh, listener correspondence. I can't say email because it came in via Twitter. And it's from our friend Gene Lorbert. He uh, wanted to hear our thoughts thoughts, uh, sometime on what he called in quotes, structured resolution outside of combat. Uh, So you can call it a skill challenge or something else, but what are the pros and cons of using it? And how has D&D incorporated or experimented with it over the years? And, you know, this is, this is a really good question. Uh, One that we probably have had shows about uh, maybe in future or future incarnations. Yeah. In past incarnations of the show, but (laughs) this, I love that, that structured resolution uh, phrase, because that really is, what this is about combat in in D and in AD and and in all the editions of D and is structured resolution, right? There are pass fails, there are tons and tons of rules, so you know what the outcome is based on your input and based on a roll of the dice and the the interaction with the rules. But that has never been something that has gone outside of combat. So. I can't remember. I didn't play at the end of second edition and get all of the mm-hmm. lovely splat books that came out from there, but pretty much I've been heavily invested every, every other part of D and D. And I can't think of a, a time where they try to in the basic rules, get this structured resolution down. It was introduced in four E as a skill challenge. Yeah. And, and well, you know, it's interesting because the game has had skills in various iterations. Like, um, I forget if it was the expert rules. One of the rule sets in Beckme introduces it mm-hmm. um, as, as, as essentially skills, uh, which was brought by other RPGs that develop skills. And, and there were things like professions that you could find in the AD&D DMG. Right. And all of that was a way of resolving things but we still the the majority of interactions that were there, and if you've been listening to our classic series, you know it's things like percent chances, right? Um, and and it's it's or it's an ability score check, but in in some way, though right. not always consistently, yep. and it doesn't really represent any talent of the skill, uh, you know, and and of the character, and it's also not structured, right? It's not like there is a scene that really revolves around it. Yep. Um, it was a lot more open, and that was both good in its openness, and also was a bit. Um, uh, it, it could be really lame, right? It right. Could, because it was just it was it was an interesting, and, and a lot of times the rules were, were haphazard or even punishing. And you can look like the 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 best example is probably be the thief. If you look at the percent chances thieves had for stuff, right? 
they basically failed all the time until they were like 12th level or something. Right. 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 And no one else could even attempt it. Right. Yeah. How, yeah. how hard it is. is it to climb a wall? Right. Anybody right. should be able to climb a wall, but, but uh, thieves had this percentage chance of doing it and was, yeah. was pretty, was pretty low at certain points. It really was. Uh, and, in yeah. third edition, one of the things that I really saw was that while we had skills very formally there, you know, a big structured part of the game, the scenes tended to be things like the door with magic something on it, the trap, um, the lore, the diplomacy check. And those things tended to be very heavily one person would make that check and be specialized it. And that, I think, is what most led to fourth edition's approach was that a character, just a single character taking a scene was was not pleasing to designers, right, and, and to the table. They wanted to say, how can everybody be involved in it? And that's what led to that framework of the skill challenge. Yeah. So when, when fourth edition came out, it had this skill challenge in it. And as we're saying, it's not revolutionary in its ideas because the ideas were always there to make things other than your class abilities mean something but it was revolutionary because it attempted to formalize that structure and formalize the play of the game outside of combat so this structured resolution was something that good dms or game masters already did in their four previous four games it just didn't necessarily call it anything specific and what the intent the the, the intent of the four e skill challenge the idea was great but it was implemented too hastily those of us who play tested we got this play test packet very very late in the process and it it wasn't altered greatly that i could remember from how it was given in the actual rules despite the feedback that was given so it's been established that 4e play testing was rushed and that was a problem with it yeah and in fact the dmg prints with one version of skill challenges that was so problematic that they then issued errata, but yes. that was still problematic. It was still problematic. So what a skill challenge does in, in a good way is it forces the creator of the adventure, whether it's the game master or a designer, to sit and think of possible outcomes based on what the characters may or may not do, and then give uh, reasonable consequences for success, failure, or partial success. So in that case, it's something that good DMs already do. It's if the characters try this, what what could the complications be? How can I get a cool story out of these steps that they're taking? Where where it went wrong was the 4E skill challenge almost forced you as the DM to treat it like a combat rather than a, a... way to facilitate role-playing and exploration in a systematic way. So, you know, rather than saying, what does your character do? Describe it to me like you would see in a Powered by the Apocalypse game. And when you say something that triggers a rule, then we will go to that rule. It was, all right, you need five successes before you have three failures. What skill are you using? With only the very, very thin veneer of actual role-playing or storytelling on it. 
So it turned into this rote mechanic that sometimes didn't even make sense within the context of the challenge it was presenting. Uh, yeah. So, so that's, that's why it, that's why it failed uh, because it tried to mechanize something that while needing to be mechanized, didn't need to be overly mechanized. Right. And I think uh, that was a, a big problem was that how it was presented was by the own admission of the designers wrong, bad. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then even in adventures, I, I think most adventures, the way they portray skill challenges is problematic and leads directly to that idea of, almost going around the table and everybody picks their favorite skill, whatever they're best mm -hmm. at yeah. and rolls with no flavor and no anything. And, and even my, the thing I hated the most, <laughs> disliked the most was adventures that would say, if the character succeeds at endurance, it's because they did the following. Right. So it was like the adventure telling you what you tried to do, which is the opposite of you, you want the player telling right. you what they want to try to do. And you want to work with them to create that narrative and, and the results and implications. Right. And, and that it's sort of the it's a way of getting to that. Let the narrative uh, inform the role. But just it's backwards. It should be yeah. if the characters try to power through the mist uh, rather than sneak through, then roll endurance. If they try to yeah. sneak through the mist, then roll stealth or whatever. Uh, right. So right. yeah, it 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 had the right idea. It just did it the wrong way. The one place where skill challenges in Fourier I thought really worked well was when you incorporated them into combat. Since combat is already mm -hmm. mechanized, you could put up some gates that would make a combat more interesting before you could harm the you know, big, bad evil. You had to deactivate the altar. These were the steps yeah. you needed to take to deactivate the altar. You were already in a mechanical combat. So putting that in helped create some memorable uh, combats. But what's neat is that despite how problematic fourth edition skill challenges were, they managed to be, sort of so necessary and interesting at a high level and, and a sort of undefined high level nebulous and, and basically better because of that nebulous quality such that you see authors designers dms today using this in some way mm -hmm. in 5e and even in other rpgs if they were right. familiar with this concept because because they understand that that is some loose approach is better than going all the way back to where you didn't have this at all and you either allowed one character to dominate or there's sort of nothing to do but whatever people might just randomly come up with right yeah. and and so that's where people create challenges non-combat challenges that sort of require various facets to them and there is a loose quality as to how the players will go about it and in a way that we're going to collaboratively resolve collaboratively resolve those and that's neat yeah. The game Torg, way back when, had some, had, a, had a, a mechanic called the drama deck. And it was similar to this skill challenge in that the, you have the time of within the combat slowed down. So think of the ticking bomb, right? And you started to do everything at a very, very slow pace. And there were cards where you could flip to throw complications in, and you had to overcome those complications. Oh, cool. So it was 
that was sort of a precursor. It was it was a as as uh, Jean would say, you know, a structured resolution system. Yeah, that yeah. that was uh, yeah, it was problematic in its own right, but at least it was attempting to uh, capture the feel of this sort of outside of combat, but still important to the story structure. That's cool. Great yeah. question. Yep. Uh, excellent question. Keep those questions coming via Twitter or, uh, or email or Facebook or however else you can uh, get them to us. So let's get into the news. Some good news coming this week. Uh, first and foremost, we have the Dragonlance Unearthed Arcana survey is now available. So you can let Wizards of the Coast know what you think about Kender, about Lunar Magic Sorcerer subclass, about those Dragonlance backgrounds and feats that we talked about. Um, you can go to the normal place on the uh, Wizards of the Coast website to, to give them your feedback. You heard Jeremy Crawford talking about backgrounds with feats and general sage advice. Uh, what were your thoughts on his YouTube talk? Yeah, so this latest D&D YouTube channel interview, um, Jeremy Crawford begins the <laughs> big opening piece is all about how he um, kind of bemoans that fans will interpret the optional things that they say as being something to debate, uh, whether online or at their gaming table. So, you know, if they make a ruling on, say, like, oh, your passive perception is a, is a floor... Uh, you can't go under that, um, that somehow everybody will use these in rules discussions. And he gets, quote, I get super bummed. These are meant to just be happiness tools. To which I say, well, what did you think would happen? Why, why did you bother saying something if you didn't think it mattered? You know, like, like you made right. a ruling on a podcast where you yeah. explained what the design intent is. And so if you do that, well, that carries weight because you're yeah. the designer, not just the design, you're the lead guy for rules. Yeah. So I, you know, I thought it was somewhat like, I understand where he's coming from, right? Like oh, yeah. the end of the game is make it fun. Right. But also I don't think you should be surprised or super bummed if yeah. this is used in discussions, right? Yeah. I mean, this, this game and practically any game, any hobby, any fandom, part of it is, you know, d debating rules. And so if, mm -hmm. if you as a voice of authority say something, that uh, voice of authority rings out. And yeah. when becomes... you tell me that I can maybe carry a shield around, but not be proficient, it, but receive its magical plus to my armor class. Yeah. That kind of matters. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and if you didn't think it mattered, I don't know why you said it because yeah. it, maybe the, it would have been better if you hadn't. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, yeah. And then, then there are many rulings that we all love. And so that's just the way right. it goes, right? There are yeah. going to be some that people comment on and some that people accept. And Yeah, I, I bet. And there. we will want those answers, right? I think everybody yeah. still wants to know what's up with sled dogs. And yeah. they've never told us. <laughs> but we well, all want to know. <laughs> I, I've been super bummed about you know, things I've written. And, and people are like, well, this says this. I'm like, yeah, but I meant this. But just make it fun for your table. And they're like, no. Yeah. You know, th this is... This is what was written. This is how it's going to be played, and you know it's just part of yeah. part of the uh, part of this little merry-go-round we're on. So it's true. So what, what a else? lot of it. The, oh, yeah, ahead. the other part of it is is really what we find in Unearthed Arcana, and also links to previous products, which is these new changes that we see design-wise. And Todd Kenrick asks Jeremy Crawford about these things. So one is, you know, what's up with the background suddenly giving you a feat. 
And Crawford points out that Strixhaven did this first. And that's true, though I would say that Strixhaven, the, the Strixhaven initiate feat is, is really about sort of what school you're a part of. And it's super likely that if you're running Strixhaven, you're all taking that uh, background and all getting a feat which says what school you're in, because that's sort of all a campaign thing. Right. Um, and, and Jeremy points out that this is in line with what they did in other Magic the Gathering books, so it's not a power-up, you know, Magic the Gathering's um, Ravnica has a guild renown system, though I'd say that's not at all like a feat power-wise. Mm -hmm. um, Theros has the piety system, which is quite strong, but again, the idea is you're playing a Theros campaign. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so when it comes to Dragonlance, uh, you know, to me that is a, a power-up, I think that I would expect that one would play a Dragonlance campaign and you might have one character that's a Knight of Salamia, but another character is just a regular old sage or soldier or, mm -hmm. you know, right. any of those other typical backgrounds. And if, if that ends up being what happens, well, then that's a big difference, right? Because one of you gave a feat. But from what I gathered in the interview, it sounds like what Crawford is saying is backgrounds will get stronger. Mm -hmm. uh, they want to do more with backgrounds because he says... There's a desired Wizards of the Coast to give the background a mechanical toy players can see and play. Mm -hmm. Looking back from a design perspective, they feel the background can easily vanish in terms of being meaningful unless the DM specifically looks to use it. And that for sure is true. Sure. But, you know, I, you know, is the feat an answer? Who knows? And so maybe 5.5 will see all backgrounds providing this kind of a, a, a more... Uh, toothy feet kind of aspect to it. I and mean, maybe that's what it's going to be, something that gives you a narrative feat in some way. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have to remember that when backgrounds started with fifth edition, they were new. You know, they were the power creep, even though it wasn't, uh, it was more of a way to give you uh, skills and proficiencies uh, rather than power. But it was new. So it, it was something that hadn't been, you know, tested for 10 years like yeah. like they have been at this point and so I, it, it makes sense it makes sense because people want whether they're right to want it or not is a question but they're they're always going to want one more thing right give me give me one more yeah. thing give me one more reason to uh to take a, a background so right. i can totally see that I think for 90% of people who are probably listening to this podcast, it's all fine. But my worry is always the new player, the casual player. Right. Right. Um, I run games for kids a lot. None of them really want this. Right. They might say they do, but the reality is that as we make these pieces more complicated, mm -hmm. there's more to track. And they already don't track half of what we do at the table. Yeah. Like, I have to remind the spellcaster that they have spells, you know? <laughs> Sure. I mean, yeah. And, and casual players are afraid the more they see on the sheet, right? And so when you start adding everybody a mm -hmm. feat, potentially at first level, right, with your background, well, that is now more, right? And and yeah. that's that's extra stuff to track and all that. And, and I don't know. And, and and that that comes to the question of when they come out with this newer version of the game, whether it's five point five or six or whatever they choose to call it, who's the audience for that? Are they trying to resell it to the same players that have been playing 5th edition? Are they trying to get new players? Because if they're trying to get new players, adding adding 
uh, complexity to it doesn't seem like what you want. Uh, yeah. because the people that wanted to play maybe aren't playing because it's complex enough or too complex as it is. So taking it into a direction that enhances role-playing while cutting down on the mechanics might be a reason. But and I, you know, I, I don't know. So yeah, I don't know either. Guessing. I would argue that a background actually sort of works as it does. And while I understand that sometimes we bemoan and just last week on Twitter, there was a DM sort of saying like, ah, I wish backgrounds kept mattering. Uh, it was Graham Ward, who's a great DM. Mm -hmm. um, but I sometimes think that the point of a background is really just to help you design your character. Mm -hmm. And it's for first level and maybe second level play. And then if you really want to dig into that concept, well, you can choose to do that through role playing. But it's not supposed to mechanically come up all the time because if you were an ex-soldier, that doesn't have to matter. What matters now is that you're taking on, you know, the tyranny of dragons or whatever it is. And, and so maybe it should fade. Um, I think it's fine to say in a Dragonlance campaign, we've got a Knight of Salamnia. But do we want every player at the table always mm -hmm. having that? Because you have to say I'm a Knight of Salamnia and here's my class. Right. And here's my race. And and that's where it just gets complicated, right? Because yeah. it's you never you, you're many things. And as we try to make you more things, those pillars are all running into each other. Right. It's true. It's it is hard, especially for new players. And like you said, even for some current players to keep all of that straight. So and what about yeah. dice? Yeah, so they talk about hit dice uh, here. This is, I guess, a direction that Jeremy says, and this is the part I find super fascinating. Basically, the designers have been directed uh, by Crawford to work with existing aspects, but do make them do new and more things. Yep. So hit dice is something that every player understands if you have any kind of fluency in the game. So let's use that as an underpinning for new things, to do new things, to power things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's generally wise. It could be certainly better than introducing a whole new mechanic, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I think that, you know, we just want to be careful about how much more they're doing with it and whether right. it makes narrative sense. Because I think Hit Dice, in some of what we saw in the Nerf Arcana, feels like you're giving of your life force. So you're, you know, you're wearing yourself out to do this thing. Yeah. And sometimes it feels just like you're just doing a thing. Right. And it's just mechanically tied to that, but it doesn't narratively link in. And that's where I'd be careful about that. Yeah, I, I think I talked about this on the Eldritch Lore cast, which is mm -hmm. if you if you create new rules, you have a limited number of resources to work with. So you try to work the best you can <laughs> with those and hit die, hit dice happen to be one of them. Uh, but, you know, I I love the idea of using hit dice to power things with with the assumption that those hit dice that you're spending are going to be detrimental in the long run because you won't be able to use them for healing. Yeah. Now, if you run a game where you never actually take short rests because you do two combats and then a long rest, then hit dice aren't needed. So I here's the design example that I would love, but it needs to be implemented right from the beginning. Keep hit dice as a thing but you can only heal even with spells by spending hit dice. So like for e healing surges, right? Somebody casts cure wounds on you. You're using a healing yeah. surge. Uh, so now it becomes something that you need to heal, but mm -hmm. 
but also a resource that you need to spend to maybe use your class abilities like rage or sneak attack or smite or stunning fist or your fighter's extra attacks, right? You're tapping into that pool of hit dice. Now it's simple. It's just one pool. You're using it for a lot of things, but there's that choice you need to make. Yeah. Uh, players are, are making a important game and story choice. Because we always have to go back to the story. If we lose track yeah. of the story when we design our rules, then we're not doing a service to what this game could be. Absolutely. But this would only work, again, if that resource management part of the game, the game has to come out and say, this is how we expect you to play this game. If you want to play it differently, yeah. here's how you can adjust it. But at the base, we expect you to play 10 encounters before a long rest. And you can maybe get two short rests in between. And that, and this is how that will affect the game. That's how it will affect the stories that you tell. But this is what we expect. Then the game can be balanced for all the players fr- from that point. But unless it's explicitly stated, we get this wild yeah. divergence of, of play. And, and in a world where the designers keep giving us more and more temporary hit points and things like that, more mm-hmm. classes that can heal as if they were a healer, uh, then the characters are never burning through their hit dice anyway. So mm-hmm. it becomes non-narrative in terms of there's no pressure to it. Right. And if you just do things like we saw, there's one of the Unearthed Arcana pieces where you don't even spend your hit die, you just roll the hit die. Right. So it's almost representative of what you're able to do. And I, I don't know why, like to me, that makes no narrative sense, right? So yeah. so I agree with you that that it's fine to reuse pieces of the game to do new things. But that narrative underpinning, as you're yeah. saying, it has to be consistent and flow through, or you will remove the narrative quality of that. Yeah, yeah. Now, it, and it would be cool. It would be cool to have a, a class that didn't use their hit dice for anything offensive, because they would be the ones that were constantly healing and have yeah. more hit points and be more defendery yeah. types. So, you know, you could balance that with proper yeah. playtesting, but it, it just mm-hmm. it needs to be. Yeah, it would be great. So. Cool. Um, the only other thing that came up with feet trees, uh, which again, they they do at least acknowledge that these have been very problematic in the past, right? I mean, three had the whole like you have to take dodge before you can take mobility and and you know all that kind of stuff, and before power attack, attack you must take yeah, this thing, yeah. 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 And and you know, but to, when I look at those, those are all examples of where the balance was never good between them. Um, and even if I look at this under Tharkana, the, the balance is different, right? And so they, they, you know, they didn't really touch on that in the call. They just sort of said, we want to do more things where there's a, a narrative connection across feats. So mm-hmm. I think we're going to see these feet trees come back. Maybe they're small ones, but yeah. uh, so we'll see how that goes, right? I think that's, um, it's difficult. At one point, Jeremy says that they've received feedback over the years that players want more dials to tune their characters. Mm. I'm really surprised by that quote yeah. because I don't see that. Well, I, I believe that players think they want more dials to tune their characters. I don't think the game benefits from giving players more dials to tune their characters. Uh, yeah. I believe they should have dials to tune their characters, but those dials should be involved in choices rather than in character creation. Because yeah. there, if you, I'll say it again, if you separate the, the rules from the narrative, you're doing a disservice to the game. If everything is just character creation and separate from the game you're playing, the story that comes out, it's let those dials be in the game. 
and you can fake out the player the player's mind in a way that that we we can't really see unless we really truly step back right so fourth edition for example would have these really easy to use pre-gen cards Mm-hmm. That were really great double-sided cards, and they would list all the powers. But but by virtue of the real estate dedicated to the powers, mm-hmm. players would sit there and stare at those cards and try to decide what they wanted to do right. instead of just saying what my character wants to do is X, and mm-hmm. then the DM could help. Yeah, then you'll probably want to do this thing, you know. But it, it just it got so bogged down in optimal choice because yep. it, it's that menu, right? You give the brain a menu. The right. brain dissects the menu each and every single time. And, and yeah. that's the kind of thing that happens when we give more and more dials. Yeah. yeah, you have all these dials, but now you must choose, especially if they're things that you're choosing every single round. Am mm-hmm. I using my Knight of Salamnia thing? Or am I doing, da, 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 am I powering this? You know? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's true. Uh, Dragon Plus issue 41 is out. Uh, it has the usual advertising, focusing this time on the Another Deep Release, and the upcoming Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel. Uh, Kat Kruger, writer and all-around awesome person, talks mm-hmm. about her upcoming book, How to Be More D&D, uh, which will help you incorporate elements of D&D into your everyday life experiences. I need to be it's more It's kind of fun. D&D. Yeah, it really is like apply D&D logic to your everyday life. I, I love it. I need more dials, Teos. I need more <laughs> dials in my life. In my everyday life. In yes, my everyday yes, life, true. yes. Uh, the Best of the DMs Guild focuses on nautical adventures and supplements, including a free download of Salt, Marsh, Salt Marsh's Notice Boards. Uh, you want to finish us off here? Yeah, we get free map downloads from Candlekeep Mysteries. Um, there's also some art packs, which is kind of fun. So if you're running VTT type stuff for this, then it's neat to have that art right there digitally available. Uh, we also get maps for dragon layers from Fizzbands. And then D&D in translation, there's an article here that talks about the process that's being used to create translations for books in Europe and Latin America. Um, Brazilian Portuguese is now confirmed for the later half of 2022, which had been an open question. And they tout the virtual play weekend tables that they have in Portuguese. Um, and they also mentioned German and Spanish, though I think those are less frequent. It's It's been a little delayed as those try to get implemented. I've been trying to help with the Spanish side, but it, it's difficult. <laughs> All these things are difficult to, to get off the ground and get enough people and yeah. enough attention and translate everything, and then it changes. Yep. Um, but uh, there are French and German Twitter accounts for Wizards of the Coast now. And, you know, I'm signed up to the newsletter for Spanish, so I get product notifications in Spanish. Though it's always sad when they tell me all about, you know, Radiant Citadel in Spanish and say available only in English. Mm. But it's yeah. it's a process. It's, uh, it's yeah. getting better every time. Yeah. Um, and the last thing is an interview with Emmy Tanji, who's the awesome art director at Wizards of the Coast. Uh, she's interviewed about all the work that she does, which is cool. Awesome. Hey, Teos, what is the largest crowdfunded project ever? Well, I haven't launched mine yet, but uh, currently, currently, <laughs> it would be Brandon Sanderson woof, by a lot. Yeah, 185,000 plus backers have pledged $41.7 million to get mm. his COVID written books. Uh, so, <laughs> You know, congratulations, uh, Brandon. Good, good, yeah. good on you. Forty-one point seven million. And congratulations to all his fans who are getting lots and lots and lots of books. Mm-hmm. Uh, Three Dragon Ante 
there is an expansion. I enjoy Three Dragon Age. What? Yeah, it's a great game. Yeah. And but I there, did not see this coming. No, I didn't either. WizKids has announced that it is releasing an expansion called Giant's War in July. This will add over 100 new cards that allow players to mix giants and dragons together with additional victory routes using the giant gods. The expansion will be $25 or $24.99. Mm-hmm. So, hey, you know, put, check it out cool. when it comes out. I'll, I'll give it a play. Yeah, fun game. Uh, last week, we talked about the AL blog, and we're very excited that GM Tim uh, got a chance to talk about his design of the uh, Mist, his Mist Hunter adventure, and they followed it up with uh, Marcelo Velasquez, who... I mean, could we have orchestrated this? I don't want to say yeah. we're responsible, but both of them were on the same show yeah. on Mastering Dungeons. That's true. And then one, two, I don't you know. Yep, we had, we had both GM Tim... And Marcelo on the same uh, episode talking about the end of the Frost adventure Maiden. Frost Maiden, and uh, now they're both not only writing but getting interviewed about their writing. Uh, so Marcelo gives an overview of his adventure, uh, shares his writing process, his influences, and adds a bit of a director's cut theme to the interview to to talk That's about fun. something that he would have added if he had could if he could have added it. So, you know, good job, AL, for keeping us in the loop on uh, what you're doing. I, I love the graphic that they have for Miss Hunters, like a movie poster with yeah. you know, all the names of all the writers and the AL admins and everyone who worked on it. You know, boy, I, I wish they'd been doing this for the last 20 years, you <laughs> know, because yeah. it's just so it gets you excited just to see it. Yeah. Right. I'll probably yeah, never play Miss Hunters past the first couple that I got to play. Mm-hmm. But now I want to. Right. It just. Yeah, my my lizard brain is like, ooh, pretty colors. I want yeah. to run this now. It's a great uh, poster. Yeah. Great. Yep. Yeah, I hope they do that again. Um, so, Sean, last bit of news here. I saw something about Ghostfire announcing Aurora: Age of Desolation, and your name is attached to it. You got to tell me more about this. I, I will do. I will do what I can. It is still in in production, so uh, the mm-hmm. Kickstarter will be coming soon, but. Uh, Aurora Age of Desolation is a setting and new rules that let you play 5e in a new and different way. Hmm. And it does so in a setting that we hope matches that sort of feel of a new way to play. Um, So it's a post-apocalyptic dragon ravaged world. Hmm. And where, uh, we're trying to set it up so you can play at different times during this apocalypse, whether it be oh, cool. right as the apocalypse happens or many years later. But the rules that we're doing will allow more character, more uh, diverse characters in terms of not only you know, what they look like, what they sound like, what they act like, but what powers that they have. Mm-hmm. So... You know, it's it's been it's been a setting that I've wanted to work on for a long time, and now that I'm working with Ghostfire, we've gotten the chance to do it. That's cool. And we are adding these new rules to to sort of enhance play. We hope that the experience is a little bit different than your normal five E uh, experience, and we're going to see how it goes. That's cool. Well, speaking of seeing how it goes, I also see on the Ghostfire page that they're releasing a card game. What isn't Ghostfire doing? 
Yeah, I mean, all of the things that they told me that they were going to be working on when I interviewed with them almost two years ago now, a year and a half ago, uh, are starting to bubble up. So yeah, <laughs> we, awesome. we, we now have a division that's going to work on board and card games. And so the wow. first one is Fight the Blight, where uh, in a world of mutants and zombies that are infecting everyone, you and your friends have to try to survive while your friends are plotting against you. Ooh, that sounds very real. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I mean, I've seen it in this pandemic. That yeah, yep, yep. <laughs> the country's fighting the other. I I, yeah. I don't think there are any masking rules uh, in this. We, okay. we don't want to get yeah. too realistic. Too real, uh, yeah. But it it hopes to be a uh, you know a fast paced fun little card game that you can play with your friends. I'm just imagining that you play on your coworker the. Uh, or on, on your fellow player, the uh, your co your boss says you must go back to work, even though right. half the it's being ravaged by zombies. And- yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. The the receptionist is now a zombie, but you still need to go back uh, to work. So yeah, so uh, you can sign up to get more information on both of those by just going to the ghostfiregaming.com website, and you will see news about Aurora and news about Fight the Blight. Now we can talk about our main topic. We have been discussing old adventures. Old people discussing old adventures. What? I'm pretty young. I'm Are, no, no. I'm not. I, I am not. I am not. So we went back and we looked at uh, Village of Hamlet, uh, Pharaoh, Against the Cult of the Reptile God, Dragons of Despair, and Isle of Dread. What we want to do now is pause and look back at sort of a what have we learned from these AD&D or you know, expert D&D in the case of Isle of Dread adventures. Uh, what did we learn from the old design? What elements would we pick to put in a new adventure that we're writing for 5e? Uh, you know, what should be dead and buried and never talked of again <laughs> about these older adventures? And what do we want to see more of? So, Teos, what are your overall thoughts? Well, I mean, I just I had to start thinking about this with dead and buried because uh, let's get the negative out of the way. And and they're almost really, I guess, all of these adventures had dated tropes and problematic content. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of isms, especially sexism. It's mm-hmm. all over the place. And, and, and I think in ways the designers didn't even recognize at the time. Oh, yeah. Um, all of which add nothing to the game. And they detract significantly from the adventures, uh, especially today, where everybody is more aware of these things. Mm-hmm. So when turning to the classics, I think you, you, have, you want to be prepared for that. Yep. Um, but it's important not to just bring it forth and laugh it off, mm-hmm. as, as some DMs might think to do, uh, because they're problematic. And, and so just really, you want to eradicate and eliminate these things yeah. and change it up, right? Like spend, just like you would change a, a bad encounter design or, or a hook that doesn't work. You want to change your NPC genders. You want to eliminate mentions of slavery. You want to add marginalized groups. You want to portray different types of people. You know, change those things up mm-hmm. so that they work better. Yeah. Uh, other things that will be good to get rid of uh, is don't just provide a location like a town, mm-hmm. add hooks to that town mm-hmm. uh, because otherwise you're sending your characters in. And if they don't, unless they're a really exploration based person and character, they're just going to wait 
for something to happen. If and when possible, or get into trouble, <laughs> or right, or get into the wrong kind of trouble, right? There's good trouble and bad trouble, yeah. And you want them to get into the good kind of trouble that leads to good stories. Um, mm-hmm. So, and when possible, make those hooks come into the game through the characters' backgrounds, traits, flaws, bonds, ideals, factions, or what have you. Something as simple as the Zentarum or the Harpers have sent you to investigate blank in this town. Right, that can add so much to Hamlet. That can add so much to Against the Call of the Reptile Gods. That could even yeah. add something to Isle of Dread. Uh, yeah. By having that one thing that they know that they're there to do. Now, once the action gets hot and heavy, everything goes pear shaped. Then you can forget <laughs> that. But at right. least it gives them, gives your players something to, to hang on to as the, as they move their character through the story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's great. And I'm reminded that there was that DM David article that we talked about that looked at sort of how to make cities and, and villages look and, you know, how to, how to make them sing and, and work correctly. Um, and that's worth checking out. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that came up a lot for me is, and we talked about this with Isle of Dread a fair bit, where they're intelligent peoples and they're just there. Mm-hmm. And, and it's one thing when you say there's six bugbears, that you encounter, all right, the idea is they're going to fight. You know, that can be fine. Uh, that can be a lot of fun, in fact. Uh, but when you start saying that they've all got huts and this is where they live, you know, now they're like a yeah. village. And right. and just presenting that as slaughter is, is, is problematic these yeah. days. But also just it's a missed out opportunity because it can be that what happens is combat. But you want to make it interesting. Right. And and when you have really what are groups of peoples, you want to give them goals, agendas, mannerisms, a story, hooks, things they can use to help or hinder the characters. That's going to make a, a more intricate tapestry of an adventure or something that's really cool. And Isle of Dead is a great example where these things just exist as dots on a map, but they should be all linked together because they live there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they right. should have information. They should have goals and desires right and, and that that is way more fun and if you if i think if you play rpgs a lot you see that the times you really remember are the times that work like that versus just i slaughtered five bugbears sure it's fun because you're rolling dice but yeah yeah, yeah i'm going to add one that's not on our bullet point list here which is you know the mechanics of ad and d or you know basic expert D sometimes called for effects where you make the wrong choice, not even a die roll. You make the wrong choice and you die. Yeah. Uh, that's something that was there in those games. And you can appreciate the, the story weight that it brought, the, the uh, fear that it put into the players if they were worried about losing their characters. So there was always this tension. Uh, but the game has evolved since then. So... Right, unless the characters do something where the obvious consequence is death, don't just say you're dead. Even yeah. like one failed save, give them other options to get out of this, uh, get out of the consequence if it's not a consequence that is absolutely explicit from what their choices were. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and another one that I'd say is, is dated assumptions of agency. So the old adventures often have a thing that just says what the character does. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's box text that says, you know, you recoil in fear. 
Um, but sometimes it's, it's, it's essentially, uh, it just says you come into the room and the, and you do the following, right? Right. Just these assumptions of what the character will do. And that was bad in every era. (laughs) So whenever you see that, you really want to rewrite that to allow for agency. And if there's an effect that's really supposed to happen to the characters, um, then change it so that that's going to be the case anyway, but, but really just put it somewhere where they're likely to trigger it rather than, than declaring that they do, because it's, it's no fun for a character. And, and we would get in arguments back then, right? Like your right. character, your DM would, the DM would tell you your character did this thing. You're like, I, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> right. You know, exactly. we would fight for hours about that. Right. Could take a lunch break, still fighting. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately that's something that you still see in, in, mm-hmm. in newer uh, adventures as well. So yeah, that is good to bring up. So we've we've talked about the dead and buried, the the bad mm-hmm. that we saw. What about the good? What was good in some of these adventures that that you reviewed? Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll go with Pharaoh, which is one of my favorites. I it, I love how it creates an interesting desert environment, and it doesn't even do it as well as we could do it today. But but it it does a great job for its era, and and is and is passable today, if if not even good today. Um, the trap filled pyramid completely delivers on that promise. And, and not just by doing so, but because they're creative and engaging encounters and situations and traps that are cool to both the DM and the players, right? They're interesting. They, they really create that sort of excitement and, and, and something new and different. I, I love that. How about you? Uh, I, I'll go with the Cult of the Reptile God. I loved how the town was the dungeon more so than the dungeon was the dungeon. <laughs> I loved how there was this mystery and while it called upon the DM to have to role play carefully, it at least gave you that story option to have the players be in danger, even though they were still in town resting. And yeah. there, there were red herrings yeah. that, you know, the people that weren't uh, overcome by, by the cultist mind magic were nice to them. And the, <laughs> The people that were rude to them were the ones that weren't because they were the ones that still had their faculties. So, you know, that sort of thing, uh, although it it still had some problematic elements that that idea of, you know, the town is the mystery is was near and dear to my heart. I like that. Yeah, that was really clever. Um, Dragons of Despair, I, I dislike a lot about how it executes. Um, but this Dragonlance adventure, what it does in a neat way is try to have a great story around a mysterious army mm-hmm. that's literally coming out of ancient history. And then you also have this idea of sort of prophecy of gods and things like that. Mm-hmm. And all of these myths, dragons being myths, right? All of these things sort of become real. And I really liked that it was trying to do that. I, I love the story behind it. And if you could redo that, I think if, if, if Dragonlance comes out, as we've seen this on Earth Arcana, I hope that they tell that story with a better adventure and mechanics because yeah. I think it's a cool story. Yeah, because the story was so strong, the random encounters actually helped reinforce the story. Normally random encounters to me detract from it. It's like, you're on this path, you're on this mission. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, lizard folk come out of the swamp and attack, which has nothing to do with the story. The random encounters in this were like the army, right? The, the scouts from the army. So it actually reinforced the story. And that's what a strong story can do is make Mm -hmm. the things going on, even on the periphery 
important to what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I, Isle of Dread, I thought was also, it's so funny because Dragons of Despair looks like a sandbox, so isn't. Mm -hmm. uh, Isle of Dread is a sandbox um, and does so, I think, very well for sort of its era. Um, but I love that it has that start of the ancient map and the pirate's tale. Yeah. Like that, that's what leads you in, to approach it in the right way and in a fun way. Um, and, and will pay dividends, you know, across the adventure because you started with this thing and you, you hear about that black pearl and all that. So I thought that was great. Yeah. Hamlet for me is just always going to be the iconic adventure because it was one of the first big adventures that I actually sat, sat down and digested. Um, and, you know, it's, it's got all the elements of everything that you want in a good story. It's got the base that you're going to hopefully care about. It's got the mystery going on outside the village. So you gather rumors from the village and then go to the dungeon. Uh, yeah. It all could be executed now that we have better gaming technology. Uh, when I mean technology, I just mean the yeah. rules. Uh, but it's, it's all the pieces are there to make a fun and memorable uh, adventure out of it. And you mentioned here that there's this uh, kind of why these adventures were so such touchstones. Yeah. Yeah. It's, we live in the internet age now where we could go online and find probably hundreds of thousands of adventures to run with pre-internet D&D, AD&D times in the late 70s, early 80s, there were a limited number of, event, of adventures you could run. So if you ran Cult of the Reptile against the Cult of the Reptile God, you were playing something that probably every other gaming group had also played. Mm -hmm. So even if you couldn't get on the internet and talk about it, even if you didn't live in a town where you had many gaming groups, if you were in high school and you went to some sort of conference or some sort of, you know, multi-school event and you got to chat with other students, you'd find a D&D &D player and they'd start talking about what their group did. And you mm -hmm. could say what your group did. And you had that <laughs> shared experience and could trade stories. And so that's why some of these adventures, even though they're not, you know, at the top of the list of greatest adventures of all times, still hold a place in your heart because you got to play something that everyone else had played as well. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think that's really critical. Like they, they were on store racks also for decades. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and that made a big difference too, because you would see them and you'd see that, that cover and it would call to you and eventually you'd buy it or, or it'd be in a box set and everybody had that box set. So you'd all play caves of chaos. Right. And, yeah. So let's get into what has the 5e not done enough of? What do you think? You know, when I, when I thought of this question that you posed, I thought to myself, well, you know, 5e has actually done a lot. Like parts of Tomb of Annihilation are like Pharaoh in terms of those imaginative trap design. Isle of Dread and its hex crawl, Tomb of Annihilation has a hex crawl even down to the blank map to fill in. Um, Lost Mine gives you a small town experience. Waterdeep gives you a large city experience, and it has a sort of mystery in a big city. We can even argue that Tyranny of Dragons gives you this idea of an invading army of dragon people coming yeah. around. And so, so there's sort of a lot of that. And then it was like, well, what do we need? And, well, mine was, of course, a desert adventure. Of course. Whether it's Pharaoh or Dark Sun, <laughs> uh, that's an evocative environment. I, I think it's just such a thing that you want. We've done frozen 
We've done jungle. I mean, it's time for desert. Yeah. I I can't think of too much. Uh, th- there aren't a lot of, at least from Wizards of the Coast, these sort of mysteries mm-hmm. uh, that th- th- there may be a mystery, but it's usually wrapped up very quickly. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, some of these longer adventures that require a little bit more uh, role playing and uh, investigation, I guess, could mm-hmm. could could be useful uh you talk about using events yeah both uh cult of the reptile god and dragons of despair have events as opposed to encounters where things happen uh either on a certain trigger when this happens then this event takes place or a certain time the third day Mm -hmm. um that is a neat thing that that changes up adventures and is a is a smart structural piece that allows you to tell a story in, in a neat way and that would be cool to see more of that in 5e where there are really strong events like i could think of something like against the uh, not against the giants um storm king's thunder right could have used some events because it's like the giants are just static yeah when you go to places you might witness things as a, almost like as a random encounter but but it's not as a sort of event driven piece and i think if, if imagine if that were happening right where the giants were slowly taking over places mm-hmm. and you had to you know, rush to get to the temple or rush to get to the place yeah. to undo what these giants are doing. That would be really cool. Yeah. So let's pretend we're going to create a new adventure uh, based on what we've seen so far and our own experiences with mm-hmm. game design. What would we do when we go and publish an adventure? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to put out a few caveats here. Uh, we know that there are many different kinds of players, many kinds of DMs, so many different wants, desires, must, mustn'ts uh, that our audience will have, whether you're talking about game masters or players. Uh, if you say my game that, or my adventure must have this, there's going to be someone else who says, if that adventure has what you just asked for, I'm not going to buy it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's not a zero sum game, but there there is this level leveling effect. Um, so let's think about something that would be attractive to at least a subset of the D and D audience, and be really right. good at doing what it is that that is going to do. So what what do you think? Huh, interesting. Um, well, I mean, I immediately want to create a desert adventure, but um, <laughs> I think that there can be more adventures that handle the 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 narrative between where you start and where you go better. This is something that I've thought about a fair amount. Um, like, let's say the way that Hamlet, you go to explore the moat house or the Temple of Elemental Evil, but you come back to Hamlet. And a lot of 5th edition adventures just continually, you start somewhere that seems super important and you never come back to it. Right. Yeah. So that's something that I would immediately think of is I would want to create an experience that revolved around your start more strongly. Okay. Yeah. I, I love that. I love that idea. Uh, for me, the most important thing an adventure can do, and not a, not a lot of those early adventures that we talked about did, was to manage things well for game masters on the encounter level. Yeah. Uh, Why is that important? Well, because that's where the encounter level is where the players actually interact with the story. The players put themselves on the page 
when they are in an encounter. Outside of that, they are not adding themselves to the story. They are just listening to you as the, the DM tell the story. So your encounters have to, have to, have to have all of the components necessary to let the characters become part of the game and part of the story. And I feel like we lose that in a lot of old and new adventure design where it's, we have this grand story that we're going to tell you, but the encounters don't push us toward the story. They don't explicate the story. They don't move the story forward other than defeating this monster. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not just talking about combat, right? I'm, you know, I'm talking about all the encounters, the role playing, the, the, uh, the exploration, all of that needs to have the necessary components to make the narrative and the adventure really, really hum. Yeah. And um, that's a, if you look at, at fifth edition adventures, there are so many places where you would want to say that the characters should gain some kind of recognition or that their 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 impacts should be registered and they aren't. Yeah. One of the few that does it is actually the first one, Tyranny of Dragons, where you know you meet with this council of all these lords from around right. the Sword Coast who recognize your role in things, right? And that's that's a really cool moment because it says, "Hey, you're as important as these kings and queens." Um, what do you think? Let's be together at this council meeting. And but but there's a there, that could happen in a lot of these adventures and doesn't. Like a, an example for me is um, Tomb of Annihilation. Mm -hmm. There are some real hinge points where what happens to Portney and Zaro and even the Chultan people is going to be heavily influenced by things you find and what you do with those things you find. Right. And there's very little space devoted to that, and there are no points there that really deal with them. But those should be checkpoints that say, here's what, how this matters and, 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 and here's what will happen as a result of it, right? Yeah. Um, when I ran it, I threw in those things. And so the Flaming Fist was expelled from Chult, right? Yeah. And, and various other changes happened. And alliances were made with uh, the merchant kings and queens and the princes and, and, and all that. And so that, that shapes the experience. And, and I think... All of 5e could really look a more of an emphasis on the story. In fact, it's funny that we see streamers talking so much about the development of their characters, but so little actually happens in adventures. Right. Exactly. Described, right? Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, you're right. Think of, you mentioned Tomb of Annihilation. Let's go to its predecessor, the Tomb of Horrors. Mm -hmm. Right. The whole story is there is this big, horrible, evil demi-lich, and you have to go stop, stop Sararak. Mm -hmm. But none of the encounters give you any information about a Sarek. None of the encounters help you realize that there's going to be a false tomb. Uh, it's just yeah. it, you get through this horrible, strange event, then you move on to the next horrible, strange event. And if you're lucky, you realize that one horrible, strange event isn't the last horrible, strange event. And so they're, they're, they're memorable encounters. They're fun encounters even, but they don't really deliver uh, on the overall story. There's, there's this hollowness when you finish them 
to, okay, we survived it, but what does it mean? What did it do for yeah. us? Um, and there are, I say that, yeah, that, well, the adventures often have like a, a piece of DM knowledge that is imparted upon the DM in, in various layers that tells you what you should know, but never tells you what part of it to share when. And so right. an example is in, in the Dragonlance adventure, right? There are various moments that indicate the gods are real, the gods are could return or are returning. Right. But there's never a point in the adventure where it says, and now your players will know. Yeah. And so depending on how much you as a DM mm -hmm. have carefully read this material and what your players may or may not know about Dragonlance, yeah. they may or not pick up may or may not pick up on it. But you may actually wonder as DM, do they now know? I don't right. even know. Yeah. You know, do they know that dragons have come back? Okay, certainly when the dragon shows up. Right. But before that, right. what should they know? And that's so important because that is a key to that narrative story we're telling, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. What do the characters know going into an encounter? And what do they know coming out of that same yeah. encounter? How has that changed? Uh, you know, all of this is important. And there are so many adventures that I've run, and I could, I could give thousands of examples where... Mm -hmm. You know, everything about the encounter could be interesting if it's run the right way, yeah. but we're not told how to run it the right way. And it's, it's, it's exactly what you just said with, with a very specific example of that information, but it's, you know, here's, here's a cool NPC, here's a cool monster, here's a cool environment, but we're, we're not told how to bring them all together and make mm -hmm. that encounter something that works completely. And, and that's what, you know, reading those old adventures with the two lines of, you know, text for an encounter, <laughs> you know, just yeah. reminds me of that, of, of where this game came from, which was very much separate the story from the mechanics uh, in a huge way. And I think we're, we've moved closer and closer, but we, we're, yeah. we're still not there. Um, and, yeah. you know, a lot of times because every encounter was just so lame, I mean, you know, yeah. it just was uh, room 14, bugbears, room 15, gnolls, room yeah. 16, goblins. So what would often happen is the DM would ham it up a bit or the players would ham it up such that it might be that when you walk in on the orcs, uh, they're playing cards. And so you interact with them. Right. Right. And that's fine because it just sort of happened. But even better is when you when you prescribe it. And so if you walk in on, you know, let's say there's a room and there are orcs inside playing cards and there one of them is arguing, calling the other out as a cheater and, and the others are demanding proof. If you hear that by listening at the doors or if you stumble in on it as you open the door, then it creates a real what do you do? Do you just attack? Do you weigh in on the issue? Do you, mm -hmm. you know, so that's where it, it creates potential energy for your yeah. characters to do something and engage with it in a narrative way. And then it can have outcomes, right? Yeah. If you work with the orcs, here's what can happen, right? Yeah. I don't think I've mentioned this story on, a com on, on this podcast, but it, it summarizes this point. I was running an Ashes of Athos game at a convention and a group came over to sit down to play. Beginning of the slot. Uh, hi, I'm Sean. Here's the adventure. Uh, you know, this is a really fun role-playing adventure with lots of story amounts. And they said, you know, we don't care about the story. We just want the combats. And so I, I took them at their word and I said, okay, well, I let me explain 
at least this part of the story. We don't care. Literally, we <laughs> want you to, we want to put our characters on the map. We want you to run the combat. Then we want you to clear the map, put out the next map, and just run the combat. A totally fine way to play. No, no arguments there. But what I want in, what I want in, a, in an adventure is that that group would automatically fail <laughs> because there are such intricate story elements uh -huh. that they need to glean during the adventure that they wouldn't even realize that they're not going to win because they can't recognize X going on mm -hmm. during the combat. So they could, they could mop up all the monsters. They would still lose because they weren't aware that that tablet that, that the one uh, troglodyte was guarding was actually the key to the entire combat. Yeah, that's the kind of integration I want between encounters well, and story, so that you won't get that. If you can just go in and play the combats, you won't win win the right. the adventure. And didn't you basically write this as a D and D open encounter for the under mountain one, where you would defeat a creature and then a stronger one would show up? Oh yeah, yep. Yeah, you want to share that, like, because yeah. that was hilarious. And, and the point of these special missions was, if tables got so far ahead that they were leaving the rest yeah. behind because it's a competitive event, there was a sort of a catch-up mechanic that yeah. the, the powerful tables would go to a, a special mission and mm -hmm. then have to come back and complete whatever else was completing. Right. So, so the special mission was you you get teleported into this room and there's a monster there. It's not a particularly strong monster, but it says something sort of cryptic. Which, if you figure it out, it's if you just don't attack for two rounds, you win. I'll mm -hmm. just go away. But players being players, especially those players that are so hyper-competitive that they can't, they don't even think beyond what is my best action. So they, they fought it. And then the next creature that showed up, these are all like angelic creatures. So mm -hmm. they kept getting more powerful until there were planetars and solars. <laughs> and by by the end, the creatures are basically saying, if you just don't attack me for a round, you will win. And they're still attacking <laughs> Th because they just can't get out of that mindset. Has nothing yeah. to do with their characters, right? Yeah. Has nothing to do with the mission that they're on. It's just it's forgotten at all. Yeah. We're we're just... just going to hit you again. I, really, I remember really walking past a table that was doing that encounter yeah. and they're like, yeah, we're facing a blah, blah, blah now. And it was something super powerful. And I was yeah. like, oh, good job with that. Yeah. <laughs> I just they, kept they my poker like, face. Yeah, they were like, you know, eighth level characters fighting a planetar or a solar and they're mm -hmm. holding their own because they're super cheesed <laughs> and, and good for them. But they never got good back to their table to... Uh, yeah. to actually complete the the open because they were so wrapped up in doing this and it was mm -hmm. special yeah. Uh, so yeah i mean it's just it's those sorts of things where <laughs> when i write that adventure i i want the story to melt on yeah. the encounter level uh with with everything else it's, right because yeah. if, if you what you want to do is truly just plunk down uh monsters to defeat you don't really even need the DM there. And then why did you come to a convention for this? It, it's a bit yeah. of a strange you yeah. know, thing. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and again, there's nothing wrong with playing any way you want to play. We're talking about what I like and what I think sure. that at least a larger subset of, of DMs out there and players out there, you know, they want the things that happen in the encounter to be important. Yeah. 
uh, to the story. So that's that's the the lesson that I took away from, <laughs> from all of this. Yeah. Oh, any any other thoughts on you know writing new adventures using these uh, using these thoughts or anything? Else? I, mean, I think just I'd say that it's been surprising to me in looking at these that actually this is really useful. Like it's, it, it's, it's somewhat, maybe at surface level, easy to say, ah, old adventures, oh, they're, they're problematic. They're crusty move on. But I actually, in reading them, I rediscover my joy and purpose for writing adventures with today's design tools. And, and I, and I learned from the old design as well. And even there was one that I read that I thought maybe I'd cover on the show and I decided I hate it. I do not want to cover <laughs> it on the show, but even then it provided me with ideas and uh, and I can see why certain designers talk about that adventure and like it because right. it does have neat concepts. I just I, I yeah yeah <laughs> I want to want to talk about but uh, yeah exactly. But but uh, you learn from this old design and and it makes you excited to do things differently and better. And awesome. someday people will look at the things that have been written you know this year and right. hopefully say the same thing because the game will have evolved that much right and be that cooler. Precisely, precisely. So thank you so much, Teos, for sharing your observations with everyone. And thank, thank you, you to yeah, thank you to our listeners out there uh, for letting us uh, invade their brain space. Thank you to our patrons for giving us some money to help us invade said brain space. Um, if you would like to become a patron of the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash MMP. So what are you talking about on your blog now, Teos? Uh, I didn't last week because I've been working on redesigning the adventure tools that my Patreon uh, subscribers and Kofi subscribers receive. So I'm going to have a new version of that out. Um, folks on Discord were, were, were saying they want to see the, the magic item calculations work. So I'm doing that. Awesome. Um, so you can get that by, by following me on Patreon. Uh, and I will, I will have a blog post up this week at alphastream.org. Mm -hmm. You can always find me on Twitter at alphastream. Where are you, Sean? I am sitting at home, but on, on Twitter, I am floating near the, the handle at Sean Merwin. Mm. Uh, you can also follow the podcast's Twitter feed at MasteringDND and our YouTube channel. We have been getting some feedback on that. So you can also Very go cool. listen to us without having to see our faces on YouTube and leave your comments there value added exactly mastering dungeons is a misdirected mark production so teos now that we have waded our way through several old adventures what are we going to do now go back in time so we can go forward in time and save the multiverse i i'm confused but i'm all in <laughs> <laughs>